Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. A few words about 365 days with the Tudor Queens to start with. The early bird offer ends on the 1st of August 2023. So if you've been thinking about signing up for this course, now's the perfect time. Over 12 months in 2024, participants will come together and contribute to a supportive and inspiring online community of individuals who share in a unique learning experience, one that will ultimately deepen their understanding of 16th century queenship. Participants will take part in an in-depth exploration and study of the lives of the Tudor Queen's consort and regnant from the uncrowned Queen Margaret Beaufort to England's virgin Queen Elizabeth I. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Tracy Borman, Dr. Owen Emerson, Dr. Nicola Tallis, Dr. James Taff, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, Heather Darcy, Dr. Emma Louisa Cahill Marron, Gareth Russell, Dr. Linda Porter, Peter Stiffel, Dr. Valerie Schutte, Dr. Estelle Perron, David Lee, and Sandra Vasoli. For further details, testimonials from current participants, and to book your place on this unique experience, please visit onthetudortrail.com or my author site, nataliegruniger.com. As always, I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the very generous listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Now is actually a great time to join because you'll receive a month free when you pledge annually. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. July's prize is a Six Queens and a King trivia game, kindly sponsored by Horton Games. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. Now on to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Heather Darcy back to the show to chat about the children of the House of Cleves. Heather works as an attorney and a part-time law professor in the US. Along with her Juris Doctorate, she has a BA in German, which was of great value in her research. She completed multiple graduate-level courses in early modern history, with her primary focus being the Holy Roman Empire under Charles V. Heather is an Associate Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and an adjunct law professor at Northern Illinois 
Illinois University. She runs the website maidensandmanuscripts.com and is a co-host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. She has future projects about the Stuarts, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn that she's researching and writing at present. Let's dive into our conversation. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Heather. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And it's so lovely to have you back on the podcast, but it actually has been a little while since we last chatted. So would you mind just introducing yourself to our listeners again and just telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yes, my name is Heather Darcy. I own the website maidensandmanuscripts.com. I am a co-host of Tudor's Dynasty podcast, and I specialize in Anna of Cleves. Wonderful. Thank you. And we are actually here to talk about your new book, which is very exciting. So Children of the House of Cleves. So maybe just before we kind of dive in to talk about those people, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired this particular book? When I was researching my first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, I learned so much about her family, because as you might recall, the first book is researched and written from the German perspective, which really changed how I viewed her marriage and the downfall of her marriage to Henry VIII, and they were just so interesting. And I think one thing that immediately stuck out to me was that her brother, Wilhelm, was alive from 1517 to 1592, and that's a really long time. And so he was also the Duke of the United Duchies of Jülich-Kaiferberg or Juliers, Clevesburg from 1539 until his death. You just don't really have that happening very often in the 16th century. Um, so that's really why I wanted to do it was I had all this new information. I found out about how dynamic her family was and her nieces and nephews. And I wanted to bring that to the world. And I thought also, I think for a long time, English speakers haven't realized how important the United Duchies were or how involved they were in Central European politics. And I wanted to explain that a little bit more, flesh that out a bit more for people who are interested in Anna of Cleves or who are interested in German history from the time period. Okay, so maybe let's just start by you just telling us a little bit about the the four siblings, the, the, the subject of your book. Yes. So the oldest is Zabilla, and she's featured on the cover. Then we have Anna, and then we have Wilhelm and Amalia. So Zabilla was born three years before Anna. Zabilla was born in 1512, and then it was one child a year for their mother, Anna in 1515, Wilhelm in 1516, then Amalia, Amalia in 1517. Zabilla is a very, very feisty woman. I've learned that all three of the daughters of Cleves are feisty women, but she went on to marry the elector of Saxony. So within the Holy Roman Empire, a lot of the territory of which is modern day Germany, you had all these different principalities, but you also had these individuals called electors. And depending on when you're looking at the Holy Roman Empire or what century you're looking at, there's anywhere between seven and 11 of them. And they elected the next Holy Roman Emperor. So for example, when we're looking at Zabilla and her husband, because she married, well, he was the future elector of Saxony at that point, but Francis I, Henry VIII, and Charles V had all hoped to be the next Holy Roman Emperor and had hoped to get elected. So one of the most powerful electorate in the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, if we can call it that, was the electorate of Saxony. And that's the family into which Zabilla married. And what's even more interesting is she married into the family that protected Martin Luther from the emperor. So she went off to a political hotbed and was very successful. She did have a successful marriage with her husband. They did love each other. Um, I would say that as much as we all like to talk about how out of shape, to be kind, Henry VIII was when Anna married him. Zabilla's husband was even worse, and it was rumored that there was only one horse in Europe that could carry him. And then, of course, we know about Anna. 
I, I think Anna made the best of her situation. Unfortunately, she was, in my opinion, somewhat abandoned in England after the annulment because it was too dangerous for her to go back to Germany because she'd have to cross through imperial territory. And as we might remember, Anna's brother was busy making the emperor angry. And also, I don't think that Anna's brother, Wilhelm or Henry ever figured out who was going to pay for her to go back to Germany. Henry already paid a whole bunch of money to bring her over from Germany, and I don't think he really wanted to deal with doing that to send her back or be responsible for her. And then Wilhelm, uh, I think he was a very ambitious young man. He did get his wings clipped and thereafter had a very interesting relationship with religion. And his life changed dramatically as a result of his decisions of his youth. And he had the same kind of concern that we saw with Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, where the heir died and the spare was questionable, although in the case of Anna of Cleves' family, the spare was a lot more questionable than Henry VIII. And then finally, we have Amalia, and she's a bit of a shadowy figure. She never married anyone, and so we get little glimpses of her personality, more so from reading anecdotes about what she did or didn't do as it relates to her brother Wilhelm and how she made him mad effectively. <laughs> she was very good at making him upset. So, But Amalia, it, from what I can tell, marched to her own beat and just didn't really have any problems sticking it to her older brother. I'm hearing that a lot about 16th century women lately. I just absolutely love it. Now, tell us a little bit. You've obviously said that there were three three um, daughters, one son. So presumably there were some differences in the way in which they were brought up and educated. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So young men would stay in the Frauenzimmer Zimmer and I'll come back to that word in a moment, with their mothers until they were about seven years old. Frauenzimmer literally means room of ladies or ladies' room. And it could mean the physical space that was occupied by the ladies' court, the ladies' shadow court, or the ladies themselves, depending on the context of what you're reading. So if you're reading about you know, Zabilla and her Frauenzimmer came to court. Well, that's referring to her attendance. But if you're reading about they played chess in the Frauenzimmer, then that's the physical space. So it was kind of a multi-purpose word, depending on context. But during the day, noble women would spend their time in the Frauenzimmer. Boys' sons who were seven or younger would also be present in the Frauenzimmer. They might have some pages present who were male that were under the, the age of 12 years old. They would learn very practical skills such as math, believe it or not, and they would have a female accountant in the Frauenzimmer because they tried to keep out men as much as possible, how to mend clothes, how to make clothes, how to cook, how to balance your books. They, we also know that Zabilla learned how to play chess, so I assume that Anna might have learned how to play chess because I don't know how Zabilla would have learned it before she went to Saxony if she didn't learn it in the Frauenzimmer. They would have played card games. They would compete with other princesses by embroidering or making ever more fancy gifts to give to each other. They would also spend time in prayer. It wasn't uncommon in some palaces or castles where they lived that there would be a separate entrance to a chapel for the Fauncima to enter so that they were still separated from the men. But they would also spend time with men during the day. It's just there's usually a governess present. So you might have everyone getting up at court, enjoying their breakfast. The women stay in their shadow court for maybe half the day. And then in the mid to late afternoon, they would join with the male court and chat, do whatever they're going to do, but under the very watchful eye of governesses. And then they might have dinner together and then separate back out for the evening. And the doors to the Fauncimmer, uh, in Cleves at least, it was a law that the doors had to be locked at night after a certain time. And the only people allowed in were doctors. So um, very, very different from an English education, but not 
I think it's important that we recognize that even today, different countries have different ways of educating people. And that doesn't mean that she had a poor education compared to her English counterpart. She just had a different education. And also, she had no idea she was going to be a queen, nor did her parents. And by she, I mean Anna. Sorry. No, that's okay. And was there any, was was music a part? Like, I know, obviously, the English court music was such an, an important factor. Was that valued at the, at the German court? It was, but it would have been odd for... Anna, Isabella, or Amalia to learn to play a musical instrument. So there were there was a tradition of storytelling. There were the minnesänge, and I don't specifically know how to translate that word. Zenga would be a singer, but they would come and tell tales. I think we could probably liken them to bards, maybe. So there was entertainment at court, and as far as I'm aware, they did have dancing, but it just wasn't as ubiquitous as it wasn't as much of a free for all as it was at the English court. And I'm not trying to disrespect English culture, but again, looking at it from the German perspective, they saw the English as being a bit debauched and drunk. Right. And I don't I don't know that that's true. Cultural differences, right? So it would have been a bit more rigid. Hunting was a major form of entertainment. And we do know that Amalia of Cleves, the younger sister, she participated in a collection of poetry. So I like to think of Mary Howard, the Duchess of Richmond. She had married... Henry Fitzroy. She was known for keeping it's a collection of poetry. And we have several poems from I think there's a couple from Mary herself, some from Margaret Douglas, I believe. And I know that there's several from Sir Thomas Wyatt, the elder in that book. Well, one of Amalia of Cleve's friends at court kept a similar book. And there are two poems in there that are in Amalia's handwriting. We don't know if she wrote them or not, but they are in her handwriting. And also they have her signature. So there was poetry that was consumed at court. So I think that it was similar to the English court, but very, very sober. So jumping ahead a few decades, we're going to talk about Wilhelm a little bit. And we I already mentioned that Wilhelm had the problem with the heir and the spare. When it came time for the younger son to marry, they brought a woman from the Bavarian court, so very far east, Munich area. And when she came to the Cleves court, she found it to be very, very sober. And the Bavarian court was much more lively and high-spirited, whereas the Cleves court overall was a bit more reserved and maybe even dour by that point. So, yes, there was music. Anna would not have learned to, and her sisters would not have learned to play musical instruments. I think Frivaldi, my impression is Frivaldi was something you did behind closed doors. So tell us a little bit about the German dowry system and why you found Anna such an interesting case in regards to this. Well, both Anna and her, her older sister, Zabilla, are remarkable because in the German dowry system, this is very, very rigid, very rigid structure financially. Usually a noble daughter would marry down a step socially. So Anna and her sisters are hereditary duchesses. Normally they would have married something that was using the, Eng the English terms instead of the German terms, a count or a marquess. But when we look at both Zabilla and Anna, they married way above their station. So they didn't even marry laterally. Like Zabilla married the future elector of Saxony, which again, there's only seven to 11 of those, depending on what century you're looking at. Very, very powerful people. And Anna married a king. And so when all of these little girls are growing up, it was it wouldn't have been thought of as a possibility for them to increase their station by that high of a degree. Wilhelm, on the other hand, he started off as a duke remained a duke, but it's not that strange that he initially married a French princess or that he married an archduchess as his second wife. Because again, the women would always marry down. And it's because it was cheaper. That's right. why. Yeah, I was going to ask so, you, what is it financial? Yeah. 
Well, and that's why you might recall that Wilhelm complained of not having enough money to pay the dowry for his sister, Anna. That's because all the dowry money got spent on Zabilla marrying the elector of Saxony or the future elector of Saxony. So they just kind of ran out of money. That and Wilhelm was, you know, preparing for war. But um, overall, any money that I, I'm under the impression that the money that would have been set aside for Anna, or at least it wouldn't surprise me if it were true that her father maybe dipped into that a bit so that he could afford to pay for Isabella to marry who she did. And then Amalia, part of the reason why she fell through the cracks is because in the time period, originally a youngest daughter like Amalia would have been sent to a convent. And in Germany, before we have the dissolution of the monasteries in England, you see very, very similar behavior of there's different bases given for it, but it's very similar behavior of shutting down religious houses. So it was just an odd time. And I think that in some ways, younger daughters or youngest daughters fell through the cracks almost socially. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about Amalia because you've obviously mentioned she didn't marry. So is there much in the sources about her? Do we know what she did with her life then? She stayed mostly at the Ducal Palace in Dusseldorf and also in Cleves. She was a devout Lutheran, so she did convert. So Anna and Wilhelm remained Catholic, as far as we can tell. Wilhelm would vacillate sometimes depending on how he was feeling. But on paper, Wilhelm was Catholic. And part of that is because of his entanglements with the Holy Roman Empire, you know, losing a war, having to marry a Habsburg princess, that whole thing. And as a result of that, his sons also had to be Catholics, because we have to keep in mind that it wasn't just a difference of religion. They're also almost like political parties. So you had your pro-Habsburg Catholics and you had your anti-Habsburg Protestants slash Lutherans. So we have the powerful United Duchies. The emperors really, really want Wilhelm to hold it together, be a Catholic, have Catholic sons. Amalia, because she's in the Fallensima with her nieces through Wilhelm, converted most of them at some point in their lives to Lutheranism. I think one or two of them might have gone back to being Catholic but Wilhelm was not happy about that. We also know that she was declared too Lutheran to marry. I don't know what that means, yeah. but that was a comment that was made about her. Uh, she also refused to go to her sister-in-law's funeral because it was a Catholic funeral. So Amalia was just kind of a, a pain in the butt is my impression. I like that summary. <laughs> so so you've talked about, obviously, that the women, and they sound like it, were feisty, did what they wanted to do in a way. So what else can you tell us about their personalities? What else did you discover as you were doing this research? Zabilla, Zabilla was a very, very family-oriented person. She exchanged a high volume of letters with her husband. She very much loved her sons. They were all very interconnected. One thing that I found amusing is... I feel like there's this phenomenon when I text my husband and maybe it's a long text or I send him a series of texts and then he gives me a very short answer back. That's been happening since at least the 16th century. So I feel like Zabilla would write her husband these really long letters and telling him random things as we do and giving him updates about her day. And then he would send short letters back. But they're always very loving. Zabilla was very brave. She helped defend the city of Wittenberg against the emperor during a war. At the time that she was defending the castle and the city, she believed that her husband was dead. And after the city was captured or she capitulated to the emperor, she went to the emperor without any soldiers, just with her and a couple members of her Fallensima dressed in black to ask about her husband. So I don't know how much humor she had. She was very frank. There was another time where she didn't feel well because it was her lady times. And so she didn't feel like getting dressed to go hunting because she didn't feel pretty. 
And I think we can all appreciate that. And I, I realize that that's a bit crude, but it's just you don't normally read about that type of thing in a letter from the 16th century. It's like people, I think, still forget that women go through that. So, but she was very, very serious and sober-minded. She was very religious and in in a genuine sense. So I think that when we look at the 16th century, we believe that everyone was religious. I don't know how many of them were genuine religious versus that was the thing that you had to do. So from what I can tell, both Zabilla and Amalia were very, very devout. Neither Anna nor Wilhelm were. It was more, this is a socially acceptable thing that you're supposed to do. Tell us a little bit about Anna. What would you summarize her personality as? I think she was sassy. I really do. And I think I'm sure there's more about her personality in my first book. But when I look at her interactions with Catherine Howard in England after the annulment, there's one of two ways of looking at them. There's looking at them as Anna being very, very meek and mild. And then there's actually thinking about what her actions were. And I, I just think she was the queen of sass. So for example... When she went to court on New Year's Day and brought Catherine Howard and Henry VIII a pair of horses with very, very expensive purple trappings. Remember a moment ago, we were discussing how German princesses would compete with each other by giving fancier and fancier gifts. That was her competing with Catherine Howard. Queen of Shade, that's what I've called her, Queen of Shade. And, And it worked because all Catherine could do was hand Anna a pair of dogs that Henry had given her. I also learned that Anna really liked dachshunds. That's kind of a fun thing to think about. So, um, but overall, I think that she was, I think she was maybe a little bit more cheeky than her other sisters. For example, when she found out she's going to be queen of an entire country, she really liked to remind her brother of that before she went to England. So I think she, she was probably a little more fun than we realize. Yeah, I love that. Queen of Sass, I like it very much. So you mentioned briefly some of Willem's children. Do you want to just tell us a little bit more about them? Yes. So he had seven children, five girls and two boys. Unfortunately, one of the girls died when she was about six years old. All the other girls, the other four girls survived to adulthood. His two sons technically survived to adulthood, but the older one unfortunately passed away from smallpox when he was about 20 years old. So he did become an adult, but he didn't live to marry or have children or anything along those lines. If any of our listeners are interested in medical treatment or disease in the 16th century, when I was conducting research for this book, I tripped across the daily diary, I suppose you could call it, of the young man's illness. His name was Carl Friedrich. So Carl Friedrich was actually away in Rome when he fell ill. And as a result, they the treating physicians wanted to keep a record of what was happening with the illness because they had to send that back to Wilhelm, to Anna's brother. And so it's pretty gruesome. I think it's, I tried to keep it from being too gross when I wrote about it in the book, but it's absolutely fascinating in just the ways that they tried to treat the disease and to an extent, the medical knowledge that they did have. So maybe the treatments didn't work, but they were aware of the situation and they could make some decisions about what was going on because so often we hear about, oh, an autopsy was performed and they came up with this weird guess and and it makes sense for the time. But I was stricken by how knowledgeable these treating physicians were. So, and then the younger brother, Johann Wilhelm is the one who winds up becoming the last Duke of Cleves. And he suffered from some form of mental illness. And unfortunately, we never really know what someone suffered from, but he had a very interesting life and an interesting relationship with his sister, Sybil. So I'll tell you about the four daughters now. So there was Maria Eleanor, who was the first daughter. She married and didn't get on too well with her husband. She had to kind of seek her brother's help 
and her father's help with getting her daughters married. And then there was Anna, who married well, Magdalena, who also married well. And it was the descendants of those daughters who later wound up fighting over the United Duchies in the Thirty Years' War, which I'll, we'll get to that. Um, and then there was Sybil. And Sybil stayed at court longer than any of her sisters. And she and Johann Wilhelm were both present at the court in, uh, it was in Dusseldorf, but in the United Duchies when their father passed away. And at the time, Johann Wilhelm was married and Sybil hated the wife hated her. And I kind of think about the wife as being the Anne Boleyn of the United Duchies because she was accused of having several affairs. She probably did actually have one, but she was accused of over a hundred different acts of being naughty and was put in a tower. And uh, Sybil was involved with the Regency at this point because Johann Wilhelm couldn't really take care of himself. And that was part of the problem with his wife and uh, helped convince him to sign a really vague document that we believe alluded to getting Johann Wilhelm's wife dead. And then one night she goes to bed and she seemed fine and she's not alive the next day. And so there's different theories that she was poisoned, that she was strangled or that she did it herself. But either way, no mourning was ordered for her and she was buried she was still buried in a church, but she wasn't buried in a place where she should have been as a duchess of the United Duchies. But it's said that her ghost still walks around carrying and she's wearing white and carrying her head for some reason. I don't know why she's carrying her head because she wasn't decapitated. But so that's a bit about the sisters. Wow. And then this, <laughs> it's there's a lot with this family. So I feel like I'm jumping around a bit yeah. and I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry to the listeners if they feel that way. But they, this family is just they're just very, very fascinating. They they didn't see a bit of intrigue they didn't like, I suppose. <laughs> no, I like it. I can see why you've, you've obviously written a whole book about this. So just get back <laughs> to the, the daily diary that you mentioned. So is that available online? Can people like look that up or, or how do you how did you get access to that? I went to the Newberry Library in Chicago and there is a book written by Stephanus Pegius, who was the tutor to Carl Friedrich. They happened to have a hard copy of it. Okay. It was originally published, I want to say, in 1573, so two years before he passed away. This particular edition was published, I believe, in the early 1600s, while Johann Wilhelm, Carl Friedrich's brother slash Anna's other nephew, was still alive, and it included this in the back. It is written in Latin. So the book by Stephanus Pegius is... Parts are in Latin and parts are in German, and the actual account or diary of Carl Friedrich's illness is in Latin. So I don't know if that book's been scanned and if it's available online, but it's at there is a copy of it at the Newberry Library in Chicago. All right, fascinating. And just while we're on the the topic of of sources and and source material, I suppose, which I always find really interesting to hear about, is there a lot in terms of like letters and correspondence from from the women, the sisters, that still survives? There is. Uh, so they had a cousin who was at the Bavarian court. And they exchanged letters with that cousin quite a bit. I did not dive into that, but I do know that those exist. And there is a whole book, again, in German, but there is a whole book about the the correspondence between the sisters and their cousins in Bavaria. So you mentioned there the end of the United Duchies. So tell us a little bit about what happened. Yes. So the whole concept of Cleves being a duchy only existed for about 200 years. So at the beginning of the 15th century, Anna's forebears were very good at supporting the emperor to reward them. Count Adolf II, I believe, became the first Duke of Cleves. And then his children were John I, John II. And then it goes 
Adolf, John the first, then John the second, then Johann the third, then Anna's brother Wilhelm, and then Wilhelm's son. So, and then the United Duchies came into being after Anna's father married her mother. So that's how they were combined. Anna's mother was the heiress to Jülichenberg or Juliers and Berg. When her father died, Johann, Anna's father, became the Duke of Jülichenberg by the right of his wife. So that was common in German culture is the woman didn't really rule a territory. Whoever was married to her would take it over. So that's what created the United Duchies. And then that was formalized in 1521. But going back to what exactly happened and why it ended. Johann Wilhelm, uh, Anna's nephew and Wilhelm's son, he just, he he was not able to have a son. He did try, as far as we can tell. At one point with his first wife, it was suggested that they hold Amherst Congress a little bit less to protect his health. So he certainly tried. And we know that he tried with his second wife as well. But for whatever reason, there just wasn't an heir. And we never know. I think there's a game we like to play nowadays of whose fault was it that the babies didn't live or that there were no babies. Nobody knows. We have no idea. And as far as I can tell, there's no record of Johann Wilhelm having any medical issues. I have no idea if the wives had any medical issues, but for whatever reason, there were no babies. And Johann Wilhelm was more of a figurehead at court. There were regencies or borderline regencies throughout his reign. And when he died, it was right around the time that the Holy Roman Emperor died. And that particular emperor also did not have any legitimate heirs. So you've got these two huge territories, one, of course, being the entire Holy Roman Empire and the other one being this powerful territory of the United Duchies and no one's left to rule. So then descendants of Wilhelm's daughters. So one of them, I think, is a son of Wilhelm's one of Wilhelm's daughters and the other one's actually a grandson at this point, start battling over the United Duchies. And poor Johann Wilhelm is not buried until 25, 30 years after he died. They just kind of shoved him into a chapel, put a black cloth over his coffin and left him there. So the actual United Duchies weren't formally separated until I think it was maybe the 1670s, I want to say. But they were, depending on how you look at it, the fight over the United Duchies between Wilhelm's heirs is either a run-up to or the Western theater for the German Thirty Years' War, which the overall issue was the lack of an emperor. To really simplify it, even though I feel like I'm saying a lot of words right now. (laughs) Isn't German history fun? It's super fun. I love it. I absolutely love it. So, okay, so anyone listening, Children of the House of Cleves is the book you need to get if you want to find out more about this fascinating, absolutely fascinating family that clearly has more people than um, just Anna of Cleves. So... Last thing, Heather, you know, the last thing I do is I always ask for a takeaway from my guests. So something for our listeners perhaps to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? I do. There is a book called Mad Princes of Renaissance Germany. It's by H.C. Eric Middlefort, spelled M-I-D-E-L-F-O-R-T. And it discusses not only Johann Wilhelm, but also I was mentioning the emperor who passed away and had no legitimate sons. Well, he had a son that went mad. And so it, it discusses in the 16th century and maybe a bit of the 15th century just mental illness in some of the the leading houses in Germany. So I wanted to recommend that because it's fascinating, if nothing else. Wonderful. Thank you. And before I let you go, what are you up to now? What are you working on at the moment? I am finishing a book called Stuart Spouses, a compendium of consorts from James I of Scotland to Queen Anne of Great Britain. I hope that it's easy to consume. 
I'm trying to do my best to introduce these consorts because, again, we read so much about the actual monarch, which makes sense because they're the figurehead of state that sometimes I think consorts get a bit lost. And of course, as someone who we both research Henry VIII's wives, we experience that all the time when trying to figure out what they were like or what they got up to. So I'm not entirely sure when that book will be out. It's my hope that it'll, it'll be out for the holidays, if not early next year, but the publishing industry is a bit curious right now. Yeah, it sure is. Okay. And so where can people just follow your work so they know when that book's coming out? Are you on social media? I am on social media. So on Facebook, it's Heather R. Darcy, historian. And remember, it has that, my last name has that unique spelling of D-A-R-S-I-E. That's right. I'm yes. on, tw- yeah. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as at H.R. Darcy History. And then for Instagram, I completely forgot that I had a middle name. So it's just at H. Darcy History. And I'd say I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter, but I'm still on Facebook as well. And you can always, if you want to contact me, you can contact me through my website, maidensandmanuscripts.com too. Fabulous. All right. And thank you. I have to thank you again for coming back onto the show and and such a fascinating discussion about the children of the House of Cleves. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions, or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.